doctorate of God, uh, theology proper, as some people call it. That's literally the, uh, the, the meaning of that word, theology. It's our understanding of who God is. This is where theology begins. Now, I know last week we actually started with the doctrine of Scripture. That was, that was for good reason. Um, but this week, we get started in theology proper. I wanted to begin with this quote you have at the top of your handouts. Mine goes a little bit longer, so I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Um, but before we get started, actually, I think it would be wise to begin with a word of prayer. So will you, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness, which you have shown us generously. Lord, we know there is no end to who you are. God, you are all-powerful and all-knowing. Lord, you are wise, and you are kind, and you are love. Lord, and we are wretched sinners, far deserving of the salvation that you have offered to us and the life that you have given us through your Son. Lord, we pray as we seek to get a glimpse of who you are, Lord, that you would give us your wisdom and your understanding. Speak to me clearly. God, that I might bring honor to your name. Lord, we pray that as we seek to understand who you are, God, that it would change our hearts. That there was not, this would not be simply information for the sake of information, but that this would be information for the sake of holiness. That in understanding you better, Lord, we would understand more of who you have called us to be and what you have called us to be like. So, Father, we ask this humbly in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, theology, proper doctrine of God. This is what A.W. Tozer says in his book, Knowledge of the Holy God, which uh, I have a, a list of books in the, uh, in the back. You can notice at the very back bottom, I have a list not only of books, but also of some websites uh, some articles online, as well as, you'll notice in the very middle, you see the, the Gospel Coalition course. There's two of those. Um, those are excellent resources that are totally free and on a seminary level of education. And it is 100% free and 100% accessible for all of you here. So let me encourage you to check out these resources on here. Um, J.I. Packard, Knowing God, the second book listed there, that is my favorite book of all time, so I will never pass up an opportunity to highly recommend that to you. But this quote's from A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of a Holy God. He says, without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. And he goes on, he says, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, where it is inadequate or out of, where, where if it is inadequate or out of plumb, the foundation, the uh, whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe, he says, that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taking taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should be first. 
we do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. Let me recommend reading that book. You just got like half of it right there. So the first question on your sheet, what is God? I included this, uh, this definition here for you. This is from Timothy Keller's uh, uh, church's catechism that they put out called New City Catechism, um, one that we use to help teach our kids theological, theological concepts. But this is a great definition he gives here. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice and truth. Nothing happens except through him and his will. So we're going to get into most of that as we go through this evening. But the two things that I want uh, to stand out to you here before we move on to the attributes of God and the will of God and all of that, the two things I want you guys to notice here is that God is creator and sustainer. This is where our Bible begins. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens, and the earth. So he's the creator. The doctrine of creation states that God has formed and given existence to everything outside of himself. So that's what creation is. God has formed and given existence to everything outside of himself. He did this from nothing. It's what we see in the scripture by the power of his word so God speaks and creation forms out of nothing the only thing which was not created was God himself so God is the creator and he is the sustainer so he not only creates but then he sustains the fact that God is the only uncreated and eternal being in the universe who is also the creator of all of that, right? Means that he is the sole source and sustainer of everything that exists. So God is, to say that God is the sustainer means that he is the source of everything that exists. Not just by creating it, but by keeping it. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. So we not only have our being in him as he created us, but also in him we live and we move. We see this as well in Hebrews 1, 3. I'm going to give you guys a lot of verses. Write them down if you want. Ask them for me later if you want. I wanted to have slides. I didn't get to it. I'm sorry. But Hebrews 1, 3 and 2 Peter 3, 7. So this means that everything, every being in the universe is subject to God and dependent upon God as their creator and as their sustainer. So some might think of God as a mystical clockmaker who creates the universe, puts all of the planets, the solar systems in their place, fills the oceans with water, sets the, the mountains all the way to their peaks, puts life on earth, and then he steps back and he just watches what happens. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the creator and the sustainer. Meaning that the universe doesn't operate like a clock where it can just be created and set and left in place. Instead, if God were for a single second to step away from his creation, life as we know it would cease to exist. What that would look like, I don't know. I'm not going to contemplate. But life itself is kept order is maintained solar systems rotate by the sustaining power of god we are all derived 
and dependent creatures ourselves. What I mean by that is that none of us are like God. God is the sole being who is, again, the creator and the sustainer. He is the sole being who needs nothing from anything outside of himself. So we're unlike God in that sense. We belong to God the absolute owner of everything. We see that in Genesis 14, verses 19 and 22. Genesis 14, 19 and 22. And so that means that we are, as his creatures, who he sustains, we are accountable to him. He is not simply a God. He is the God who created us and keeps us. So we are completely accountable to him. Romans 3.19. Romans 3.19. So then as his creatures, how do we know God? How do we know God? I'm going to grab my phone so I can keep up with the time. But there's two ways that I, I give you here that we are a, through which we are able to know who God is. There's general revelation. And there's special revelation. Uh, General revelation is revelation of God that is given to everybody. It's general, universal, if you will. It is the kind of revelation that's described in Romans chapter 1. It tells us that God exists, what kind of God he is, and his moral standards. We get that from general revelation according to Romans 1 and in revealing God's standards it shows us that we have not measured up to them that's why Paul says of general revelation that it reveals God's wrath even against sinners that's Romans 1:18 so general revelation comes to us through the natural world it's what we refer to as Natural, the, natural revelation, and it comes through our own nature. Since we as humans, according to the creation account, were created in the image of God, we are able to understand some of who God is by ourselves. We have a concept of what is good. We have a concept of what is just and mercy and We have these concepts as a created human race made in the image of God that we know. Now, the reality is that we're not doing the doctrine of man, so I'm not going to dive into this much right now. We as people, as, as men and women, reject that knowledge, and we choose to pursue the opposite. So I'll, I'll leave that for, I don't remember who's covering Doctrine of God, but Bob is, so Bob will cover that, I guess. So that's general revelation. General revelation communicates God's existence, his power, and his glory, such that men and women are without excuse. It is not sufficient knowledge, however, for salvation. The knowledge that is necessary for, for salvation is the content of special revelation. So special revelation, it it contains the knowledge that we need to know God personally, intimately, and salvifically. Again, this knowledge is not found in general revelation. General revelation, nature, um, our understanding of who God is through ourselves, it does not communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does not uh, communicate the atoning death or the incarnation or the resurrection. You cannot find that through nature. What is required is special revelation. And the revelation that we have at our disposal, which is considered special revelation, is the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Uh, Taylor covered the, the, these last week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them as well. But the understanding that Scripture is God's special revelation rests on the conviction that God has inspired the books of the Bible through human authors. Paul points this out in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And Peter adds in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what this means is that when we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God, what we mean is that God superintended the human authors of Scripture, led them, controlled them, guided them by His Holy Spirit, so that their words were the very words of God Himself. And because Scripture is the very words of God Himself, Scripture carries the full authority of God. It is His Word and because God is infallible, meaning incapable of error, the Holy Scripture is inerrant. So that's general revelation and spiritual revelation. And we have 40 minutes left, so this is great. So question three. What is God like? What is God like? I have this broken down in, I think, three categories unless I'm mistaken. First, the triune God, because I wasn't exactly sure where to plug the Trinity into this conversation, so I'll put it right here. And then secondly, we have the attributes of God, which are broken up into two categories, the incommunicable attributes, long word, you're welcome for writing it out, and the communicable attributes of God. So we're going to get into that first. We're going to begin with the Trinity, so what is God like? He is the triune God. We believe in one God. We're not polytheists. There's one God. But that one God is in three persons. This is the Trinity. Historically, this has been one of the most misunderstood doctrines of the church. Let me give you a, a couple of verses. You can write these out and look them up later, but Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 and 28, 19. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Now's a great chance to learn shorthand. <laughs> and verses, uh, chapter 12, 4 through 6 also. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So Matthew eleven twenty seven and 28, 19, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, and 12 through 4 and 6, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Now if I need to slow down, y'all just let me know. Now, I have this explanation of the Trinity given to you here. God eternally exists as one essence and three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, yet there is one God. So three persons, one God. There's four affirmations that I want to give you really quick. You can try to write these out. The fourth one's long, so maybe I can help you come up with a shorter version of it. But one, there is one and only one true and living God. So you can just say there is one God. There is one and only one true and living God. Again, we're not polytheists. We do not believe or worship more than one God. The God of Scripture is one. Two, this one God eternally exists in three persons. This one God 
eternally exists in three persons. The God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that means from eternity, not from the beginning of eternity, as if there is a point in which we could locate that on a timeline, but from eternity past and eternity present and eternity future, there is one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. One God eternally exists in three persons. Third, these three persons are completely equal in attributes. So what we're about to get into in a minute, in the incommunicable and the communicable attributes. These three persons are completely equal in attributes. So all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if we're talking about the knowledge of God, all three completely equal. The power of God, all three completely equal. The grace, the sovereignty, the love, all three completely, fully God. And then fourth, don't try to write this down yet. I'll give you, I'll give you something to write down. While each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical. The difference among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are found in the way that they relate to one another and the role that each plays in accomplishing their unified purpose. So you can write the difference among the three persons is the way they relate to one another and their role. So the difference among the three persons is the way that they relate and their role. So we'll get into, uh, in a couple weeks, the study of the Son of God and the study of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time tonight to dive into uh, the study of the Father specifically, but as we study the, the person and the, the divine nature of Jesus Christ, we will see that Jesus was sent by the Father. We'll see that Jesus is the, correct me if I get it wrong, he is the eternally begotten Son of God. Meaning, eternally begotten, meaning that he is the begotten Son. He is from the Father, but eternally meaning there was not a point in which he was begotten and that was the point where he started. Eternally begotten means that for eternity, past, present, and future, he was always in relation to the Father from the Father. That's what begotten means. So as we understand these relationships and their individual roles, we understand God as, a, as the triune God better, but also we understand God as the Father better. Now, moving on, as we get into the attributes of God, this is where the bulk of our study is. We have 33 minutes to go, so I got here about as quickly as I wanted, so that's good news. Um, and again, if I start to go fast, too fast, let me know. So I've already mentioned briefly about the attributes. The attributes of God are most commonly divided into these two categories. There are plenty of other categories out there. As I began to uh, study the attributes of God, I uh, honestly became very overwhelmed with the amount of resources available regarding this study, not only available, but the re number of resources differing regarding uh, these, uh, these attributes. But something that I took away and was almost universally recognized is that because of the nature of God, being infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, because God is who he is, it is nearly, it is impossible. For finite creatures, we're finite, right? We have a beginning and an end. It is impossible for finite creatures to fully or honestly even begin 
to understand an infinite God. So as we go through these attributes, as we reflect on everything regarding the doctrine of God, that's something worth keeping in mind. What we begin to understand here does not even begin to crest the peak of the mountain. So, these two uh, categories I use, and, and uh, another kicker is you can pretty much argue any of these attributes into the other category. So, I probably could have just done without giving you incommunicable or communicable, but incommunicable or communicable. That's a tongue twister. But I did it anyways for a reason I'll get to later. So, the incommunicable attributes of God, these are the attributes of God which he does not share or communicate to others. So these are the incommunicable attributes, meaning he does not share them with or to others. So the best way to understand this are these are ways we are not like God. Ways that we cannot be like God is even another way of understanding that. The communicable attributes we'll get to here in a second are those attributes which he does share with others and communicates with us. So the first one we see there in our list is simplicity. Now I did start this with simplicity intentionally. Simplicity is the idea that God is simply not made up in parts. This is similar to our understanding of the Trinity. God is one in essence. So that means if you say the Father plus the Son plus the Holy Spirit equals God, that is a false statement. God is not made up of multiple parts. That if you were to remove one, you're left with two-thirds. God is simply God in every aspect and attribute. The Father is holy God, the Son is holy God, and the Spirit is holy God. This can be a difficult concept to understand. Hopefully, in heaven, we will understand it a little bit better. God does not, with his attributes, God does not possess his attributes as if they are part of who he is. What I mean by that is that we do not say, well, God has love. God has a whole bunch of love. What we see in Scripture is God is love. We don't say God has power or possesses power. We say God is all-powerful. Simplicity means that God is always God in every essence and attribute. So as as we look at the attributes of God, as we go through this list, this is our key for understanding who God is. Each of these attributes are not simply a part of who God is, but they are all fully who God is. So one key demonstration of this truth that we see in Scripture comes on the cross. When we attempt to describe the actions of the cross. One might say that the cross was the full display of the love of God. They would be correct. Another might say that the cross is a full display of the righteousness of God. They would be correct. Another might say that the cross is a full display of the sovereignty of God. They would be correct still. When God acts, he does not switch on or off part of who he is to carry out his will, God is always fully God. 
God is always love. God is always just. God is always righteous. God is always sovereign all of the time. So, again, for example, when we look at Scripture, there's a temptation to look at the Old Testament and separate it from the New Testament as if there's two different gods. One God who is wrathful and jealous and seeks after vengeance in the Old Testament, and one God who is full of grace and mercy and love in the New Testament. But the same God in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament, and the gospel of Jesus Christ was God's sovereign plan from beginning to end. God does not change. We'll get to that in a minute. But God is always God. Here's some verses. Write them down really quick. James 1.17. Deuteronomy 6.4. Mark 12.29. I'll repeat them in just a second. Isaiah 46. Sorry. Isaiah 44.6. Revelation 1.8. And Ephesians 4.6. So James 1.17. Deuteronomy 6.4. Mark 12, 29, Isaiah 44, 6, Revelation 1, 8, Ephesians 4, 6. Okay, so that's the simplicity of God. So as we go through these attributes, keep that in mind. The next, we have what is referred to as the three omnis of God. God is, first, omnipresent. That word omni simply means all. So God is all present. God's presence is everywhere, in every place, and in every time. God is in this place, fully, not partially. Part of God is not here. All of God is here. There is nowhere that God is not fully present. This is what uh, D.A. Carson says in an article he wrote for the Gospel Coalition. He says, he's the God of transcendence. That is, he's above space and time and history. Yet he is also the imminent God. That is, he is so much with us that we cannot possibly escape from him. He is everywhere. When we look at Scripture, the heart of the covenant between God and His people, God's redemptive promise to His people is that I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a a picture of a precious togetherness of God with His people. I'll give you, I'm not going to give you this whole list. I'm going to give you a few verses. Exodus 6, 7 and 2 Corinthians 6, 16. So Exodus 6, 7, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. So it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us when we uh, are told that the, the name of, uh, the biblical name for Jesus, the Son of God, is Emmanuel, God with us. As the Old Testament at tabernacle was a place for God to dwell with his people. When we arrive to the New Testament, Jesus, the Son of God, tabernacles, dwells among his people. John 1, 14. So God is omnipresent. Then we get to omniscient. Omniscient. God is all-knowing. God knows everything. In all of creation, throughout all of history, every outcome, every possible outcome, God knows all of it. Everything that God does, because he knows everything, because of his omniscience, everything that God does has an intelligent purpose and a definite goal. Scripture uh, refers to to the universality of, of God's knowledge, just like, every, just like the sections all before. I have a great list of texts, so let me give you two. If you want the rest of my text, I'll text them to you or email, email, whatever. Psalm 
147.5 and John 21.17. We'll just do those two. Scripture often mentions that God knows detailed happenings on earth, even in the future. We see that in 1 Samuel 10.2 and 1 Kings 13.1-4. Now because, uh, because God is omniscient, He commands all authority. He is the supreme judge. The perfect judge, the best kind of judge that we can think of is the kind of judge who makes no mistakes, who, whose verdict is always correct. Now, I don't care how good of a judge he may be, I don't care if it's a judge that is in this room, you're not a perfect judge. God alone is the perfect judge because he is omniscient. He himself is truth. That's one of his communicable attributes. We'll get to that in a minute, but Jesus says that in John 14.6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So, omnipresent, omniscient, and now omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. That's Psalm 115.3. Jeremiah 23.17. Jeremiah 23.17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your art outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Again, as we study the doctrine of God, it must inspire us to worship. How great is it that our God is all-powerful? How great is it that nothing is too hard for Him? I mean, seriously, we should just stop and reflect on that truth. We won't, though. Because <laughs> I want to keep going, but God is able to do whatever he pleases. Now, that, that doesn't mean, we should clarify, that doesn't mean that God can do anything. This is interesting. There are things that God himself cannot do. For example, God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 in Numbers 23, 19, nor can God perform any immoral actions. Since God is perfectly holy and perfectly good, again, attributes we'll cover later, He cannot do anything that contradicts His perfect nature. He cannot do anything evil. He, again, he can't contradict anything that, that would contradict the nature that he created and thereby describes himself to us. What I mean by that is God cannot go against nature itself. He cannot create a round square. God has set order into place. He is not a God of chaos. So, apart from these contradictions of his nature and, and the nature that he has established, God can do anything. Of course, the best news of that for us is that he can raise wicked, dead sinners from the grave. So I'm into that. Again, because of his, because of these omnis, because he's omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, he controls all of existence. Scripture tells us 
He controls the nations and their territory. He decides what king is to rule, when and where, according to Isaiah 44, 28. He decides the ruler's purpose and if he will stand or fall, Psalm 33, 10 through 11. Take that whatever presidential candidate you pull for. He decides that he would allow sinful humanity to take the life of his own son so that sinners might receive eternal life. That is a part of the authority and power and wisdom of God. According to Acts 2, 23-24, he also rules over our individual lives. Psalm 139, 13-16, he, he knits us together in our mother's wombs. I'm getting all of these reversed. The ones that I'm saying, the text that I'm giving you, uh, precedes the description I'm giving you, just so you know. But James 4, 13 through 17, he decides whether we should stay or go. He also has the power to save sinners, to bring forgiveness and new life. We see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Because of this, we've been raised from dead to life by the sovereign, another attribute we'll get to in a minute, power of God. So next we get to the infinity of God. God's infinity. It's, it's similar to his simplicity. All that God he is, he is fully. So all that God is, he is fully. But on top of this, all that God is, he is infinitely. He, possess, he possesses all knowledge and power and sovereignty, not largely or mostly, or partially, but he possesses these attributes within himself in infinite measure. So that means that there is no end to the depth of the grace of God. There is no end to the depth of the love of God. There is no end to the depth of the power or the knowledge or the wisdom mercy, kindness. God is all of these things fully and infinitely. That's part of the reason why it is so difficult for us as finite creatures to begin to understand an infinite God because we have no concept of infinite. I'll give you a few verses. We'll just do three. Psalm 145, 3. 2 Chronicles 26, chapter 20, verse 6. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. From that psalm text, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We could not begin to find how the we cannot begin to find the end of the depths of his greatness. All right. So God is infinite. Next, God is independent. We see the independence of God. This can also be understood as the self-existence or the self-sufficiency of God. It's also known as the, I'm going to mispronounce this, the aseity. A yeah. Of God. This teaches that God has life in Himself. He isn't dependent on anyone or anything for any need or desire. He is without want. He is without need. As we see in Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus, God created, before creation, I should say, before creation, God was there, existing perfectly as God without anything else. He has always existed without from beginning to end. In Psalm chapter 90, verse, according to Psalm 92, and then 
So again, what this simply means is that God need, needs nothing. We'll move on because I realize how much time I have left. But Acts 17, 24, and Psalm 50, for those that want to write down those verses. Next, we have the eternality, eternality of God. God's eternality, it's like his aseity, I guess, with respect to time, though. He is the Lord of time. He's existing above and apart from it, but free to enter into it to accomplish his purposes. Time itself, this is an incredible concept, time itself is a creation of God. So God has no need of the concept of time. Whereas you and I are constantly running out of time or bored because we have too much time, God never runs out of time and God never is bored. God exists apart from time but is free to enter into it in any way he chooses. So he always has enough time to accomplish his purposes and he never has too much. So we get this in uh, Genesis 1-1, of course, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, John 1-1, God was there in the beginning. Uh, Malachi 3-6, Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, and a whole host of verses that I don't have time to <laughs> tell you at the moment. The last incommunicable attributes, the immutability of God. God is unchanging. Another attribute of God that should just bring us to our knees in worship. In his perfect character, nature, purposes, and promises, God never changes. I'll also, uh, I'll add for the sake of time, because we're not going to cover it here, uh, this also includes uh, God's emotions or his impassibility. God's emotions do not ebb and flow with the failed results of his creation obeying his command. As if because of our sin, we can cause God to regret in the sense that he made a mistake. God knows everything. He is not surprised or caught off guard. He does not become uh, like, for example, today, uh, James, I think while they were still practicing, scored a goal in practice, and he ran and he jumped and he celebrated. He was ecstatic because he did something that he wasn't expecting to do. This is a, a change in emotion that God does not experience because he is constant. He is unchanging. His impassibility means that God does not experience emotional change in any way. His immutability means that God does not change in any way. He is unchanging, and for that reason, he is perfect in every way. An impassibility means that God does not experience these emotional changes. For example, God does not suffer it doesn't mean that God is apathetic. We might be tempted to consider that. But God is not apathetic. Nor does it mean that God, uh, nor that it means that it undermines God's divine love towards his creation. God is maximally love. His infinity uh, applies to all of his attributes, all of the time. So therefore, impassibility means that God's love could not be more infinite in its loveliness. Now, regarding immutability and impassibility, let me give you a few verses for both. Psalm 102, 25 through 27, 
Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, and Isaiah 41.4. Again, I have more if you need them, come ask me at the end. So now with five minutes, we're going to do rapid fire the communicable attributes of God. So first of all, because we are made in God's image, there are ways that we are designed as his creatures, as his image bearers, to be like God. We are to be good, loving, truthful, and merciful like God. While we are like God in some of these ways, even in these attributes, we are still not like God. What I mean by that is that we can love, but we cannot love like God. We can be merciful, but we cannot be merciful like God. We come to understand what it means to be these attributes by how God is them. What I mean by that is that we understand what it means to love by God, not by a romantic comedy. We understand what it means to be merciful by our understanding of who God is, not by somebody else. We understand justice by who God is, not by a judge. So like his incommunicable attributes, God is always fully his communicable attributes. That's why it is possible to argue all of these in this category into the category prior. But God has made us in his image and after his likeness to be like him in these ways, to get a glimpse of his character. While we could not begin to love like God, we're still called to love, even though our love comes up far short and in many ways is wrong and miscued because of our sinful nature. We get a glimpse of God's love in this life. Again, this is the problem with finite beings trying to understand or be like an infinite God. It's just not possible. So first we see the holiness of God. Psalm 77, 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? To be holy it means to be set apart. God is like no other. You know what? Taylor did a great job of covering that this morning, so let's go on to the next one. Wisdom. Isaiah 28, 29 says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Truthfulness. John 3, 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. God is wise and he is true. Everything that he says is true. Therefore, everything that he says past will come to be accomplished future because everything that God says is true. It's a done deal. He said it, it's finished. Love. He loves righteousness and justice. That's from Psalm 33, 5. Psalm 33, 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Again, God's attributes, he is fully all of these things. God is fully love, and there's no end to the depth of the love of God. We could get into the unconditional love of God and what that means, um, but we don't have time. So, goodness. 2 Chronicles 7, 3. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I'm going to give you the rest of the verses for these, and then I'm going to just give you the definitions for uh, the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. So, mercy. We get to see that in 2 Samuel 24, 14. 2 Samuel 24, 14. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Kindness. 2 Samuel 22, 51. 2 Samuel 22, 51. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Patience. 1 Timothy 1, 16. His perfect patience which is an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Justice, Deuteronomy 32, 4. All of his ways are justice. Righteousness, Isaiah 51, 6. My righteousness will never be dismayed. And grace, Nehemiah 9, 17 but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So the will of God, the secret will of God, this is the will of God's decree, which is largely hidden in God. The the secret will of God, it's mentioned in texts like Psalm 115.3, Daniel 4.17, 25, 32, and 35. I don't know why I wrote these out like this. Let's say 17 through 35. Rom, uh, Romans 9, 18 and 19, uh, and then Romans 11, 33, through, 33 and 34, um, and then let's just say all of Ephesians 1. But the secret will of God uh, it pertains to all things which he wills either to affect or to permit. So these are, these are every, everything that happens throughout history, since the beginning of creation, all that has occurred takes place as the secret will of God. Therefore, everything which has happened has been absolutely fixed. It's been according to the perfect secret will of God. This is why we don't pretend to know the future. What we know is that Christ will return. What happens before that, we can speculate. We have some guidance in Scripture as what to expect. But ultimately, what will come to pass is according to the secret will of God. We talk all the time about what is God's will for my life. Especially, uh, I can remember coming out of college and having a lot of friends who, as they were graduating, trying to figure out what God's will for their life was. Let me recommend an excellent book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. God's will for your life is not revealed in his secret will. You can't say, it's God's will for my life to be a doctor. I know this, 100% fact. I say, if you want to be a doctor and you have the brains to go to medical medical school and put yourself through that, then do it. Go for it. Maybe that is what... God is leading to you, uh, for you to do, but God might change what you assume to be his will for your life. God's will does not always line up with what you expect. Don't assume it. But then we have the revealed will of God. This is the will of God that he has revealed to us and commands us to obey. This is the will of precept, which is which is revealed in his law and in his gospel. The distinction between the two is found in Deuteronomy 29.29. His revealed will, seen in, uh, we'll say, Matthew 7, verse 21, and then a bunch of other verses. But the revealed will is accessible to all, and it is not far from us. Essentially, it is every day you are called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day you are called to, to wake up and devote every moment to the Lord your God. That is what you are called to do. Not try to predict the future or assume to know what God is planning. You are finite. He is infinite. You cannot begin. But the revealed will prescribes the duties of man and represents the way in which we are called to enjoy his blessing. 
That's the key. Enjoying the blessing of God does not come through assuming the future or predicting what you believe God will do. And then when that doesn't happen, you say, God, how have you failed here? But enjoying the blessings of God begins with keeping or obeying his revealed will, which is wake up and worship me. And then what's left is further reading. You can check that out on the back. That's beyond what I have time for, so I'm going to pray and um, we'll be dismissed. So, Father, we thank you for, God, your word which reveals who you are in a way that we could not have imagined or could not have created on our own. God, you are uniquely you and there is none like you. Lord, we pray that we just would be able to get a glimpse of your glory. And in so doing, that our lives will be forever changed. God, we ask this again in your son's name.